Isaiah chapter 52. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, rise, and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith the Lord, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings and publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing. They shall see eye to eye, when the Lord shall bring again Zion. And there we shall conclude the reading of God's word. By way of introduction, let me say that Isaiah prophesied in the 8th century BC, somewhere around 730 to 710 BC, he was active in bringing God's word to the people of his day and indeed to those of another day uh, yet to come. He predicted, as in chapter 39, for example, that the nation would be taken into captivity. And in the latter part of his prophecy from 40 uh, right through to 66, he provided comfort for the people who were yet to be those who would find themselves in captivity, as he predicted, and he brought God's word to them, even though it was uh, some 200 years before uh, they would benefit from his ministry. So it was prediction, uh, prophecy, and it was a ministry which was far-reaching to the people who were to be in captivity after his time. Now the remarkable thing is that the Holy Spirit who inspired uh, Isaiah in process of inspiration uh, suggested language and terminology that would not only be 
so relevant and helpful to those future captives. But the Holy Spirit set forth the message in terms that were even more applicable to a, a yet further future event. And that was the salvation of people, not under Cyrus, after the captivity, but the salvation of people under Christ and the redemption which would result from that. So in these chapters, you, you will read here uh, such scriptures as I have read already uh, tonight. It's followed by chapter 53, which concerns the Messiah and his atoning death, followed by uh, chapter 54, which is all about the church of God, the Christian church, uh, resulting from the death of Christ. Brings us to chapter 55, which is all about the gospel, free offer of the gospel, to sinners of mankind, seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and he will abundantly pardon. Now whatever such words meant for the exiles in Babylon, they obviously are fully fulfilled in the days of the Christian church, the coming of Christ and the salvation which he secured. So on the one hand, he's comforting the people just a couple of hundred years after him. In another way, he's comforting God's people who are living some 700 and more years after him in the times of Christ, telling them that deliverance is coming greater than that which came to them in Babylon, a glorious deliverance from sin and from guilt and from the power of evil and from the world and from the curse of God and the curse of the law, a deliverance which is every way more glorious. So his words here in chapter 52 are delivered to people who were cast down, who had obviously been brought very low. And he's telling them that salvation is coming. Of course, ultimately in Christ. They had been in captivity, but there was to be a remarkable emancipation through God's grace and through God's power. Sinners were to be redeemed. The captivity of sin was to be turned back. And it's at that point that Isaiah in vision sees a herald or a messenger coming over the hills. 
I read from verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And we can see how relevant that would have been uh, to those who'd languished in Babylon for 70 years. And Isaiah here is predicting that soon there will be an announcement that their warfare is over. Soon there will be an announcement that good is being restored to them. Soon they will know that their God reigns and has emancipated them from the tyranny of the oppressor. So relevant in that context. And yet we're persuaded to see a greater fulfillment here in New Testament times. And it's as if Isaiah looks and he sees this herald. The herald represents a gospel minister. And he's running towards the people of God, telling them that the bad times are over and past. And he makes a joyful announcement that deliverance is at hand, the salvation of Christ. God reigns, thy God reigneth. Now we have no better support for that second and more ultimate view of the passage than the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15 when this particular verse is applied by Paul to a typical gospel minister. Let me read what he says there, Romans 10 verse 15. How shall they preach except they be sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Paul isn't here thinking of release from bondage, at least not of the Babylonian kind. He's talking about salvation from sin in a gospel context. And saying that such messengers need to be sent. And the message is, and the message of the gospel must ever be this, that Christ Jesus, our God, has taken power to himself and now reigns as the Saviour Lord, the Lord God Omnipotent over the nations and over the church within those nations. Thy God reigneth. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Prince of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. 
And it's about those words that I want to speak tonight. Thy God reigneth. It, it, it's not just good news to Babylonian captives. God reigns. He's exercised his authority. He, is, he has displayed his power. He has set you free. Oh, it would have meant so much to them. Thy God reigneth. I would venture to suggest, however, that it means more to us in the light of the gospel. And it means these words that Jesus Christ has taken the power. He has pitied the people. He has delivered from the thraldom of sin. And we may know that he is Lord by resurrection, ascension, and session at the right hand of God the Father. And he is now reigning. So sinners will be saved, churches will be established, the kingdom will come. Thy God reigneth. Now it's at this point that we need to examine these words to ensure that we have a right understanding of them. And I want to make one or two distinctions at this point. As God, the Son of God has a natural supremacy and a natural dominion over all things. What does he say or what is said of him? That he is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings. And Lord of Lords. Now that power Christ naturally has as God the Son and as the Son of God. If we go back into the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs chapter 8 and we read that wonderful passage concerning wisdom there that is treated as a person and wisdom is one of the names of Christ in whom dwelt all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge and wisdom speaks here in verse 15 of chapter 8 of Proverbs by me kings reign and princes Decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. That is a natural sovereignty which he has. And we would expect him to have as one who shares the power and the glory and the honor with Father, God the Father, and with the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, as one of the eternal three, in blessed unity, he has omnipotent power 
over all things. But he also has what we call a mediatorial kingdom. A kingdom which belongs to him as the God-man. As the one who became incarnate in the virgin's womb and who hailed from Bethlehem and began his public ministry at the Jordan. The God-man, the one in whom, in blessed unity, two natures are to be found. The incarnate God has a kingdom. It's to that that the psalmist refers in Psalm chapter 2. And God says there, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That is not his sovereignty which he has naturally and essentially as God over everything. But that sovereignty which he has particularly over the church as the God-man, the mediator. It's spoken of in Psalm 110. Similarly, you remember the words so often quoted in the New Testament. The Lord said unto my Lord, the Saviour Jesus Christ, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. That wasn't his original supremacy that the prophet was speaking of. It was that donated supremacy for the good of his church which he has exercised particularly since his ascension at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's that position of power and might which he had consequent to his redeeming work. Peter refers to it in the great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he says, being by the right hand of God exalted, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. So there is a kingdom which he has had from everlasting as God and which he has established from the beginning of time 
over nature, over the whole world, and worlds unknown. But there is also this mediatorial kingdom, which he rules over as the word made flesh, or God manifest in the flesh. Now we must continue to make distinctions here which are valid and proper. There is, under the subject of the mediatorial kingdom, at least three kingdoms. There is his kingdom of power. The Lord Jesus Christ, who took flesh and who sacrificed the same at Calvary and was raised gloriously from the dead, is constituted king and is invested with authority over the whole creation as the Redeemer. An authority which is to be exercised for the benefit of his people. The Lord himself referred to this in several places, anticipating what was to come at his ascension. He says in Matthew 28, all power and authority is given unto me. It's not what he always had as God, it's what he soon shall have as exalted mediator. All power and authority is given unto me. He referred to it shortly before that in what is called the great high priestly prayer uh, recorded in John chapter 17, which begins thus, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And in the epistles, this kingdom of power is referred to by the Apostle himself when he says that Christ has been raised from the dead and set at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now listen. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. This kingdom of power, which has been granted to Christ, the Redeemer, is over everything for the good of one thing, and that is the church. Head over all things 
to the church, which I take to mean he is head over all things for the benefit of the church. It's an amazing thing to contemplate this, that the one now upon the throne of God who exercises utmost supremacy and whose kingdom is over everything his name is Jesus Christ he is our saviour think for a moment what that kingdom of power is it means that his power reaches to heaven as he said all power in heaven as well as on earth is given unto me we think of the words of 1 Peter chapter 3 he is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So his power reaches even to the principalities and the powers in the angelic order. He is Lord of those celestial beings of that celestial host he is over them our redeemer it reaches also to hell and to the demonic forces of that underworld here we think of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 where he says wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So his power reaches to heaven. His power reaches to hell. And his power reaches to, to the earth over all things and over all men. You might recall how in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 he is described in this way as the one who sends grace and peace from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. 
he therefore has control of all events. There is nothing that takes place in this world without the expression of his will. Everything is entirely subject to the words of the Son of God, our Savior. <coughs> Thy God, therefore, reigneth, and he reigns in a kingdom of power. Now, how consolatory is that truth to us? And how very encouraging when we hear the news day by day, we're all agreed that it's nearly always bad news. And it would be easy to be cast down, if not terribly depressed, with what is happening in this world at the present time. But faith looks above sense. The old Puritan used to say that faith climbs on the shoulders of reason and sees over the wall. Faith sees that in spite of the gloomy aspect of the world at the present time, the Savior has the power. And he also has the understanding and the wisdom, and he reigns. And we may not understand what at present he is bringing to pass, but we shall understand one day, and mark my words, we shall know then why it had to be as it is. He is working his purpose out. He is building his church. He is subduing the world to himself. He said, the gates of hell will be opened to the church and the church will be attacked and besieged and threatened. But, says he, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Why is that? Because he reigns. Thy God reigneth. And nothing positively evil will ever overtake the church to its complete ruin and its complete downfall. He will defend the church by his kingly power. He will preserve the church. It's true of us, as was said in the 121st Psalm. He shall preserve thy soul. He shall preserve thy going out 
and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. So when we are perplexed and affrighted by things which overtake the church, we must look up and see above and beyond the gloom that Jesus Christ is on the throne. A little chorus I remember singing many years ago in Sabbath school was something to that effect that he sitteth upon the throne and he will remember his own. And that is true. So even when the church is afflicted and when it is oppressed and when it appears to be overcome, Zion, thy God reigneth. We believe that even in the midst of the conflict. And we can say with others in the Acts of the Apostles, the will of the Lord be done. And the will of the Lord will be done. And although it appears that the church suffers many a reverse, or a reversal, yet it is all in the good will of Christ to promote his interests in this world and turn apparent defeat to evident success. Thy God reigneth. This this precious thought is that Christ will protect us in the worst of times. The power which is in the world is not that of unbelieving men. It's not that of wicked tyrants and kings. It's not that of Satan himself who has usurped his power, the power that upholds, sustains, and governs this world is wielded by the hands of King Jesus. I do feel we need to say this in times when we can be very disturbed and very disheartened. At saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Do we believe this? Do we really believe this? But in the time of the church's adversity, we are still able to call upon Him who has the power to redress the situation and change the situation and deliver his people. He not only has the power, but he is pleased to say to us, Call upon me, and whatsoever is asked in my name, I will do it for you. So it's not only a matter of his ability, but his willingness is brought to bear. The one upon the throne 
of the entire universe is not one who is indifferent to us or complacent about the situation, but he is the one who died to redeem a people and who rose again to establish a church. And think you that he will leave it in peril? He will forsake it in crisis? It cannot be so. And he will bring us as a people through affliction and the trial of it and the pain of it and the grief of it but he will bring us through because ultimately he reigns. Men don't. Kings don't. Demons don't. Our creed is Jesus Christ is Lord. The man of Calvary who once was pinned to a cross is now set upon a throne and upon his heart he bears the names of his people and he will rule for them and nothing can happen without his permission and consent all troubles Samuel Rutherford says comes through his fingers And we believe it to the comfort of our hearts that we can call upon the greatest power in this world and the world above. And that power resides in the man of Calvary who is now the King Supreme. Eternal. A kingdom of power. The second distinction we must make is that he has a kingdom of grace. Now when we say that, it's all part of his mediatorial kingdom, we mean that he not only has a power over the earth and over all worlds, But he has a special and peculiar kingdom within the creation. And more particularly within this world. Which includes his people. His professing people. His truly believing people. In that sense, I think we understand those words of the Savior, my kingdom is not of this world. It's within this world. But it's distinct from the general kingdom of this world. It's the special kingdom of grace. Now this kingdom of grace has two aspects to it, an external aspect and an internal aspect. The external aspect means that he has a visible kingdom within the world. 
we call that sometimes the visible church. It's visible, of course, because it makes profession. It declares itself to be made up of the people of God. It is a kingdom. We read of it in the Gospels. In Matthew 21 and verse 43, Christ says to the Jews, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. What does he mean, the kingdom of God shall be taken from them? He means that the visible church will no longer, as once it did, appear with injury. The gospel and the ordinances and the privileges of the church will be withdrawn from the Jewish people and bestowed upon a nation. He refers, I believe, to the Gentiles, bringing forth the fruits thereof. This visible church, visible because it declares itself, because it says, I believe, after the manner of the creeds. It calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it declares allegiance to him. Is the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of grace within the kingdom of providence, it's the kingdom of grace in its visible form. By an act of sovereign will, he has given his word. That is how he has established the church visible in this world. He has not dealt so generally and commonly with men, but he has given his word to teach them, to instruct them, to make known to them who he is. He is the Lord. He has appointed for this visible church its government. He hath set in the church some apostles, some prophets, some teachers, and so on. He has given gifts, pastors, and teachers for the work of the ministry. He has done that in his sovereignty. He has also instituted ordinances, the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, he has established these. In the Great Commission, he tells his disciples that they have mandate 
to baptize all nations. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. And then he describes the institution of the Supper of the Lord. He has established as Lord the discipline of the visible church. When Paul deals with discipline as in the very needful case of Corinth in chapter 1 of the first epistle rather in chapter 5 he says in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ deal with this matter of gross immorality within the professing church. As Lord of his visible kingdom, he owns it and he blesses it. He enlarges it. Through the preaching of the word, he stands by his ministers and he does give a gracious presence to the visible church whenever it is convened and assembled for the worship of his name there is a general promise that he will be there in the midst of them so it's a kingdom of grace which has an external aspect but it has an internal aspect as well and Christ himself taught this in Luke chapter 17 and verse 21 when he says and I quote his words here behold the kingdom of God is within you in establishing rule over his visible church. It is a rule of a, of a general kind. But in his elect people, he establishes rule of a special kind. When he finds them, individually they are rebels they resist him they resist his will they resist his word but within the kingdom of grace internally considered he overcomes their rebellion His people made willing in the day of his power. And not only in profession, as in the visible 
church, but in actual possession, they have the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. He goes further. He writes his laws, his word, upon their hearts. So they don't just have it in their pulpits as in the visible church. They have it written indelibly upon their hearts. And that means that he gives them an inclination to adhere to these words, to follow this law, and to obey it. He excites from these people within this internal kingdom, he excites from them new obedience. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will cause them to walk in my statutes. And he does that. He moves them by the Holy Ghost, by the power of God, to be disciples indeed. Not as in the visible church, but true disciples of the Lord. When they err, he corrects and chastens them. As he says in the letters to the seven churches, that he corrects all those that he loves. He applies benefits to them in that he seals what he's purchased at the cross to these people upon their believing. And he gives them to know the pardon and forgiveness of sins. Not in the creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, but in their experience. They know what it is to be free from guilt. They know what it is to be right with God. It is sealed by the Spirit of God to their hearts. And all the other benefits, they are blessed in Christ Jesus with all spiritual benefits. Peace, that is poured into their hearts. Joy, that is poured into their hearts. Sweet messenger of rest, he is sent into their hearts. They are Christians after a different kind than those within the visible church. They are Christians indeed. To establish an external kingdom is one thing. To establish an internal kingdom is another. To build a church in the world is one thing. But to take residence in the heart is another. This is the internal kingdom. 
And whatever his people have to deal with in this world and whatever they have to grope with and grapple with, whatever they are called to endure for Christ's sake, he gives to these people grace. My grace is sufficient for you. And the work which he's begun in these believing people, he will perform so that his sanctifying work continues and remains in them and he will perfect for everyone that he has loved, whom he has redeemed and whom he has called by the gospel, he will one day glorify. That is the apostles' promise to us. Whom he did foreknow, that is, know in a special relationship with himself as his own people, in eternal election, he also will glorify. So the chain is complete, and there's not a, a loose link in the chain. God has loved us and in Christ he'll bring us to glory. Bernard of Claveau said once that the mercy of the Lord is everlasting referring to the words of Psalm 103. From everlasting he says in predestination to everlasting in glorification. So, although not everyone in the visible church is saved, everyone in the invisible church is sure of a place in heaven. Of course, there are many who are in the visible church and who know the Lordship of Christ in their hearts too. So in a sense, the invisible church can be within the visible church, not entirely two separate kingdoms. But the Lord Jesus reigns over them both. There is a third kingdom, the kingdom of power, the kingdom of grace, externally and internally. And because our God reigns, it means that when the visible church is in evident decline, and when it is departed from the faith, and when it lapses into terrible error, or into terrible immorality, we appeal to Zion's king. And we call upon him to intervene and reform the church according to the dictates of his own word after the manner of the 16th century. It is time, O Lord, for thee to work and rid us of the innovations of men in worship and in government and in practice to establish over us the godly order 
which our reforming forefathers sought in their day. Do it again, O Lord. Reform the church to the glory of thy name. It is thy church. And yet thou art dishonored within its precincts. It should never be. We address the Lord Jesus Christ and pray for him to intervene and restore Zion to her primitive and her apostolic simplicity. As Knox said, to restore the true face of the Kirk in our day. Kingdom of grace and the visible church. And then we lament the paucity of conversions. And we lament the fact that spiritual life is at such a low ebb. We lament the fact that those who should be hungering and thirsting after righteousness are not doing so. And the spiritual temperature has fallen within the church of Jesus Christ. And terrible worldliness has overtaken the faithful amongst men. What do we do then? We have a Savior in the heavens. Our appeal is to Him. Lord Jesus, revive thy work in the midst of the years. And He not only has governing power to deal with the visible church, but He has spiritual power to restore the invisible church. He can pour out the Holy Spirit again, can He not? As He did in the 18th century, as He did in 1859, as He did in other revivals since. He can do that. All of a sudden, unexpectedly, He can send the Holy Ghost to a company of His people. And those people are quickened again in spiritual life. And they discover God. I read a book recently by a well-known and respected minister of the gospel who defined revival in these terms. Revival is realizing what we've always had. I take the gravest exception to that. That is a most misleading definition of revival. Revival is nothing more than a divine visitation. It is God taking the matter into his own hands. It is God blessing his people as he's never blessed them before. It's God coming with great unction, with great mercy. And restoring people who'd lapsed into a state of Num- numbness and even even deadness is bringing life to the hearts of God's people so that they pray as they've never prayed before so that they listen as they've never listened ever in their lives so that they follow after the Lord God as they've never followed it since they've been converted the church is brought up from the depths of shame to the heights of glory. 
And the people that do know their God in this sense do exploits. So there's the kingdom of power and there's the kingdom of grace, visible and invisible. Finally, there is the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of glory is the heavenly and eternal kingdom wherein Christ will reign most gloriously forevermore. Those in the kingdom of grace now, in the invisible form of it, are being converted, they're being saved, they're being made meet for the kingdom of glory. That's what it's all about. The kingdom of glory is in heaven. It's thy God, O Zion, that giveth thee the title to this kingdom. I give it unto thee, he says. He prepares us for it. We are made meet for that kingdom. We are prepared for it by the work of grace in our own hearts. Grace is preparation for glory. Grace is salvation in the bud. Glory is salvation in the flower. And at death, Christ admits the souls of his people into heaven. They've come out, if you like, of the kingdom of grace. Though that is strange terminology, really, because they never come out of the kingdom of grace in that they're always blessed by a gracious monarch on earth and in heaven. But they come out of the profession and the possession they've had up on earth and they are received by the Lord Jesus Christ into the ultimate kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Which explains why when Stephen was dying, he looked up and he saw Jesus standing, waiting to receive him. And within minutes of that vision, he was welcomed by the Lord of the upper kingdom. And there he gives his presence to us to enjoy Remember his words to the dying thief. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And that's the wonder in our hearts. That one day we shall see him. And we shall be with him. Where the Lamb is all the glory. 
in Emmanuel's land. He will change us when we see him. From the glory we've had on earth to the glory we shall enjoy in heaven. Sanctification will be perfected. We shall be like him. Oh, the wonder of that. And we shall be satisfied in heaven. Our God will be all in all. Which means he will be in heaven everything to everyone. Our hearts will be full of the Redeemer. We shall love him with all our hearts. We will serve him with all our strength. We will praise him with all our ransom powers. In the kingdom of glory. In case you think I've finished, I've got one more thing to say. And it's this. That kingdom awaits the perfection of the second coming of Christ and of the final day. And on that final day, According to Paul's word in 1 Thessalonians 4, them also which sleep in Jesus, that's those who've died, their souls have been welcomed in heaven, will God bring with him. For what end, we say? Because God in Christ will raise the bodies of his people on that day. And in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. For in that split second, the souls of God's people will be reunited to their raised and glorified bodies. And we shall be made like unto his glorious body. We shall shine as the light in the kingdom of the Father and in the kingdom of the Son. And thereafter, within that kingdom of glory, all heaven's benefits will converge upon us. The Lord of that realm has no other business than to bless his people. He will do us good and he will do us good forever. He will lead us by fountains of living waters. We shall never know need again. We shall be blessed beyond words in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Say unto Zion, lest any lose heart, lest any abandon faith, 
say unto Zion, the church, say this to them, thy God reigneth. It's enough. It's enough to overcome the world. It's enough to engage in holy warfare. It's enough to overcome through Jesus Christ our Lord who makes us more than conquerors. We need this watchword in our hearts. Otherwise we're going we're gonna to lose confidence and we're going to lose expectation. We will sink into the most miserable prophetic view that can possibly be entertained. That it's going to go from darkness to darkness, from death to death. Our cause is fallen. The shadows have fallen across the church of Jesus Christ. I do not believe that. I believe the church has a future. It has a glorious future. I believe that the promises of God will be fulfilled. And I believe we shall see a better day for Zion than we have ever seen. And we must keep that hope in our hearts. And should we doubt it, I say it again. Thy God reigneth. And that's the end of it. And that's the truth of it. And that's the glory of it. Thy God reigneth. Amen.